the Mermaid Society's Extraordinary Girls of the Sea series. I'm Sally Mack and I'm going to be bringing you some of the most inspiring stories and conversations from women achieving big things from every corner of the globe. This is episode five, our conversation with Cassia Mador. For over a decade, she's been an icon not only in the longboard community, but worldwide for Girls of the Sea. Her style on the board is so special, smooth and stylish. After all, she was influenced by some of Malibu's finest. Her surfing and pathway were shaped by her mentor, the late Donald Takayama. She tells us about the moment her world changed after meeting him at Noosa and the journey that they traveled together. Kasia is now an entrepreneur, setting up her own surfwear and wetsuit company that is working with some of the world's leading sustainable products. She shares with us some extremely important messages about life, lessons she's learned along the way, and how the future is shaping up. There's so much more behind this incredible role model and guardian of the sea. Uh, Cassia, we're so grateful to have an inspiration, you know, a leader in the sport, a, a woman entrepreneur and dedicated so much of her time, energy and, and life to creating something sustainable and is doing really well. Thank you, Cassia, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with y'all. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how you actually first got into surfing. Yeah, so I didn't grow up by the beach. I grew up about, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes inland from the beach. So that was where it kind of took me a little later to get started. So I didn't really start surfing till I was like 14 or 15. Like 14, the summer that I was 14, I did the junior lifeguard program because I really wanted to surf. My dad would surf, and but he'd only surf once a week in the summer when we went to San Diego. And he never really taught me how to surf. Like I would go boogie board and stuff like that, but he never taught me to surf because like that one week out of the year, was he was just working all the time and all of his buddies that he grew up with surfing, like everybody kind of moved away and we didn't really live by the beach. So that was like his surfing time. And now I kind of totally get it. Cause it's like, if I have time to go surfing, I'm going to go surfing. I'm not really teaching anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I'd be like kind of boogie boarding on the inside, watching him ride waves. And I would just fantasize about surfing. And so I did, he's like, listen, you learn the ocean and you learn all that stuff. And then you can come with me. So then, you know, the summer when I was 14, I did the junior lifeguards program. And after junior guards, you know, the end of the day, every day that we were down there, it's like we were running, we were swimming, we were learning all the tides of the ocean and all this kind of cool stuff. And basically at the end of the day, you know, whoever wanted to stay over, they had a couple surfboards. It was like foam surfboards, you know, and basically there was like five of them and there was probably like 20 of us kids. So like anytime somebody fell, they didn't have leashes. So anytime somebody fell, it was like your chance to go, you know? So you'd be like holding onto the board with dear life. Cause you didn't want to lose your turn anymore, you know? So that was kind of like my first summer really surfing. It's like we were learning the ocean. We were learning the tides. We were swimming. We were running. We were doing all the physical stuff. And then at the end of the day, it was like our special treat to go surfing. And that's, I think, why also like riding longboards growing up in L.A., it was kind of one of those things where we have so many perfect point breaks, but also just like the longboard culture, you know, those those foam lifeguard boards are pretty big boards. So that's what I was really first learning how to surf on. Being able to have that as a treat as well at the end of the day, that makes it, you know, all the more enticing is that you're not kind of being forced to go out there by anyone. You're actually waiting for that moment. 
that's exactly it. You know, I was like really just waiting for that moment. And I think even the fact that like my dad made it kind of hard for me. It was like an exclusive club surfing. He wasn't like pushing me to be a surfer. He was like, he made it like, Hey, well, if you figure it out, then you can come surfing with me. You know, I was like, man, it made me want to go surfing so much more. You always want to do what your parents like won't let you do. Right. For the most part. Like, so it kind of worked. Yeah, the reverse psychology really worked on me. But also, I just really fantasized about surfing. And I think just like, you know, I was always like an outdoors kind of person. Like, I really love skateboarding and I love snowboarding. And both of those things I used to do all the time before I even had a chance to get on a surfboard. It's like, any you know, people for the most part don't want to be forced into it. Because then once it's your own idea and your own reasoning, then you put everything you have inside your heart behind it. Do you think that's... A personality trait of yours and something that's helped you succeed with your business and what you're doing now? Absolutely. I think it's helped me succeed with my business and what I'm doing now. I mean, you know, a a big thing is for me is just like, you know, when something's difficult, I really want to push myself that much more, you know. It's like the easy things in life aren't necessarily that reward as rewarding to me personally. Um, So if something has a little bit you know, if something's a little harder to attain or something's going to really take me pushing myself to get it, then I really want to push that much harder. And I really feel that way about kind of surfing. And then that's translated into my business. And then also I feel like surfing helps give you so many skills that help us to navigate life and, you know, with more patience, with more persistence, with more determination and drive, uh, more awareness, Um, to the subtle things or the intuitive parts of our instincts come out, you know? Um, So I think that like really surfing and and business and and really surfing in life, you know, there's so many tools that are interchangeable. But I I feel like within business, it really, they're kind of like hand in hand. I mean, obviously, you know, you started your own business and it's like, you don't think about it. You just dive into it. When someone says that you can't or you shouldn't do it, it just makes you want to go 150% harder to prove them wrong? Absolutely. And it's it's not even just necessarily to prove them wrong. Like Definitely a big part of it is to prove them wrong. But it's also to prove myself that anything and everything is possible. You know, somebody says, oh, this can't be done. It's like, well, can't it? I mean, everything's, you know, the fact that we're alive, everything's a miracle. So anything is actually possible in that kind of context, you know? I guess so you started longboarding, junior lifeguards, and then you started competing. How did you get into competitions and then talk us through your trip to Australia? Yeah, so basically I started doing junior lifeguards when I was 14. That next summer I was 15 and hanging out at Malibu. And everybody, you know, was surfing and and basically like the junior lifeguards, they had a contest at the end of the lifeguard season where they had like a contest for the junior guards. And I ended up winning the junior lifeguard contest, you know, but it was just like, I think there was like three of us girls in the whole lifeguard program. So it wasn't like, you know, much of a thing, but I was like, oh, that's cool. Like I'd never won anything before in my life. So that felt really neat. And then that next summer, I I spent the whole summer at Malibu, you know, became part of the Malibu Surfing Association. And there was a lot more girls there that were really good at surfing and a lot more guys there that were super good at surfing. And that's when, you know, Joel Tudor, because Malibu is such like an amazing 
you know, wave. Like Joel Tudor and all the best surfers would show up there and all the guys and girls would be constantly giving me tips or even telling me more so like what I was doing wrong. Like, oh, that looks lame when you do that. Don't do that. Do this, you know? So I think like being around so many good surfers really helped me to improve really quickly. And then a couple of the kids were talking about going to Costa Rica for the first contest, the Rabbit Kakai contest. And that was in like, I think it was in like August or something. And so the end of the summer, I'm like, I really want to go to Costa Rica. Like, I really want to go. So then, you know, I saved up some money from like painting fences and like, you know, selling candy and stuff and went to Costa Rica. And then, you know, that I I did horrible in the contest because I just didn't know how to go left growing up surfing right, even though I'm a goofy footer, just didn't know what to do when it can't go left. Sounds pretty hilarious, but it's very true. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so then, you know, we heard about the contest in Australia. So all of us are just talking about how cool it would be go to Australia and like, let's go. And a bunch of the kids from the Malibu community that were surfing Malibu, we're all going to go to Australia. Um, so, you know, I saved up all my money, got a bunch of weird jobs, like at a Christmas tree lot and anything I could to save up all my nickels and dimes and go to Australia. And my mom was like, well, if you're going to Australia, I'm coming with you because my mom loves to travel. So that's what brought me to Australia for the first time. And, you know, I didn't have a sponsor. I was a kid. I was surfing, you know, never in a million years, especially then, did I think I would ever be a pro surfer. I was just basically knew that surfing made sense when a lot of other things in the world and in my life didn't make sense, you know. And um, so I was just following something that made sense to me and something that I was, you know, passionate about and something that gave me drive. And I think my parents saw that and they were like, cool, if you can raise the money to do all this stuff, go for it. And so it also really taught me what it was like to work super hard. It's one of life's greatest lessons is to learn how hard it is to pull all that together for yourself. And then the reward is so much greater as well. Was that reward great for you? Absolutely. It was just one of those kind of sort of situations that it was like, you know, the best ever. And I was like super grateful um, for that whole time in space, really, to be able to kind of follow my passions. And from that point on, like, you know, take a step above and beyond on what I was like, you know, working towards. And to also, I think, like, really empower myself that if I had these dreams and that I had all these things, you know, that I wanted to do, I could count on myself to get them done. Do you think that and has think- also been a, a pretty big attribution to the path that you've been led down? I guess you're a creative person anyway, but to be successful as an entrepreneur, you need that self-drive and determination and, and also confidence in yourself to actually be able to achieve things on such a big scale? Absolutely. You know, it gave me a lot of tools to help navigate everything and also like really just kind of like showing me that if I believed in something and I put my head down and I worked hard, I could make anything happen. You know, raising $1,500 to go to Costa Rica when I was 15 years old, like I couldn't legally work. (laughs) But I still made it happen. You know, I was washing cars, painting fences, doing everything I possibly could, selling candy to kids at school and stuff like that, like doing everything I possibly could to make money. And to be honest, my parents told me to this day, like, hey, you know, at the end of the day, like, we never thought you'd be able to do it. We just didn't want to deter you. Yeah, no, it was the best life lesson ever, you know, and like really teaching me how to put my head down and go above and beyond. And then it really made me appreciate every moment of every trip that I had because everything was just like a blessing, you know. 
So then you got to Noosa and you were introduced to your hero, Donald Takayama, via Joel Tudor. And that pretty much changed your life and, and that experience of having to raise your own money, right? Absolutely. You know, that, that changed my life from that point forward because, you know, Donald started making me surfboards and then, you know, introducing me to Jeff Hackman and Jeff Hackman because he was a big part of Quicksilver. Um, from day one, he talked to everybody over there and, um, you know, I showed up and surfed the contest that they put on at Sea Street in Ventura. It was like the Roxy Wahini Classic or something. And I won. So like, you know, it's not like they told me before the contest. I also like won the contest and then they came up to me and they were like, and by the way, do you want to be on the team? And I was like, are you kidding me? And that's when really my life changed, you know? And I started having an opportunity to travel the world, you know, and I still was working um, at a shop in Malibu because at the time, you know, I think they were giving me like 500 bucks a month. And that was a big deal when I was a kid that said, you know, tickets to the Maldives for a boat trip were still like five grand, you know, so I was still like they were helping me to travel for some of the trips, though I was having to pay for some of the other ones, you know, and uh but it really helped out, and I was part of the team for 13 years, I believe. What part did Donald Takayama play in your life as a mentor? As a mentor, he played a massive part of my life. I mean, it's really, I almost get, I almost still get pretty choked up talking about him because he passed away a few years ago. But he was like like a father to me, you know. He like definitely played such a huge role in my life, like teaching me everything I knew about surfing, taking me all over the world, teaching me about surfboards, and also really showed me what it was like to kind of like support people. You know, he had a, a huge rat pack team of us kids that were all surfing for him. And no matter where I was in the world at whatever time, you know, the phone would ring and Donald would know where we were and he'd always be like checking up on us, making sure that like everything was cool and that people were taking care of us and that our boards were working good. And, you know, we'd like show up like when I was, I moved down to Oceanside just so I could be closer to his factory when I was 22, you know? And it was just like everybody between Joel and Carl Ekstrom and like, you know, Noah and Mikey B. Temple. I mean, the the amount of people that he made surfboards for in, in the in the surfing world was like extreme in, in every which way. And like really gave me an opportunity to meet so many amazing people that really help, you know, he really helped shape my, my life and my career as a surfer, as did the people that he introduced me to. And he was the kind of guy that was just like, give, 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 you know? I mean, there was people, you know, just to see somebody, like, of that caliber, who's almost like a rock star, but of a shipper, you know? To see somebody of that caliber that's just, like, so overly willing to always be there in support of people, whether it was, like, friends, whether it was just, like, I was just some kid that showed up, you know? Like, he didn't have to make me a surfboard, but he did, and he made me, like, believe in myself more. And helped me to believe in myself more. And the boards that he made me helped me to become the surfer I was able to become, you know. Because having, like, a master make the boards for you is, like, that's everything. Yeah, and he had that real old-school classic mentality of, of just selflessness and also business ethic as well. Is that something that he helped you develop? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think like with the business side of things, that wasn't really happening as much, you know, like he always told me to stick up for myself and, and this, that and the other. But I think it's just more how he was with people. He was a real people person. And he was always joking around, always taking everybody to lunch, no matter who was showing up at his shop. He'd like be like, all right, we're going to lunch. And he'd close the doors at the shop and we'd all end up like out at a big lunch with like 15 people after surfing all day. It's like that sort of like, you know, that sort of just like open door policy we're all in this together. Let's all go together. Nobody's discluded. Whether you rode his surfboards or not, everybody was coming to lunch, you know? It's like if during that time in Oceanside that I was so grateful to have spent, you know, it's just like, oh, he'd call me at five in the morning and be like, what's up? And I'd be like, well, dude, not me yet, but my phone's ringing. What's up? And he'd be like, the waves are good. Calm down. And all of a sudden you'd show up at the boulevard and everybody would be there surfing together, you know, and, and you'd have this epic surf with like 10 of you. And then we'd all just go to lunch, you know, like every day was a celebration. Oh, that's so amazing. We're so grateful to have, like, spent so much time with these legends. Yeah. And the fact that they, like, really were there with us, you know, it's like they're the grandfathers of the surf world. It's crazy that, like, surfing is so young as a sport that we get to, you know, converse and actually have, like, direct communication with some of the people that were at the forefront of its, you know, beginnings really you know i like encourage some of the younger kids you know there's so much media around and so much of that stuff you know that somebody might know who steph gilmore is but somebody might actually not know who lisa anderson is or somebody might not know who ralph son is that's where it's like i encourage like the youth culture to really check out some of especially within the women's world like some of the people that that really kind of helped to pave the way to make it possible for all of us to, you know, be women in the water. Like, somebody might know Steph, but they might not know Lane. So it's, like, I encourage people to really kind of do their research. You know, 100 years is a really short amount of time. Some of those pioneers, like somebody like Linda Benson, she was 15 years old when she won the Makaha Contest, a world champion, and she was the first woman to surf Waimea. Most people don't know who her name is. And so I feel really grateful that I grew up at a time within the surf world that we were able to really, like, have access to those people. And and I think that, you know, there was a lot of, of attention paid towards that kind of, like, lineage of where things came from. And I think somebody like Joel Tudor is somebody who's like, I mean, he's a fact man. He just knows the history of everything. It's crazy. He's like an encyclopedia paying attention to the people you know that that like help pave the way is i think really important because you know you could probably be surfing out with one of them and you wouldn't even know <laughs> i think that's what's so cool is once everyone's out there it's you're all kind of on the same playing field and you don't even know whether you're in the lineup with a world champion or like one of the foundation members of the sport Exactly. Yeah, it's important and it's beautiful history and it's something that I really hope like all the new generations continue to. Obviously, they're pushing forward in so many progressive ways and I really hope that they hold some of that heritage as well and continue it forward. So aside from competing over a 10-year period, you also played quite a pivotal role in the rise of the popularity of female longboarding and the uprising of the events. I really helped kind of create the contest as they were going on, but I was just never really a competitive person by nature. Interestingly, in a position with Roxy, to, so I was kind of instrumental in helping the contest for the longboard women 
come forward and have some prize money. That said, I just wasn't like that competitive of a person by nature, which is also probably what helped me be in that place to help those things come forward for the ladies. Do you think that was one of the best things that came out of your partnership with Roxy was be part of the events and instrumental in in the way in which they pushed forward? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the, the biggest kind of things that I feel like I could help contribute in a lot of ways to the women's longboard world was to kind of help those contests come up and be a voice for the women, like, you know, talking to the places that were like heritage, because it was like, I used to go to the Biarritz Surf Festival before, obviously, it was the Roxy Pro. And that's where, you know, like Donald would go there and, and all the longboard surfers from all over the world, Nat Young, everywhere, everybody used to go to that event. And the Cote de Basque is almost like the San Onofre for California or maybe like the Noosa or, you know, uh, the Byron for Australia. It has like a lot of like heritage within the longboard world. So we were really able to get together a good group of women and have like really beautiful. I mean, at that time, we had more money um, than the men did in events for the women longboarders. And it was only for a few years. That said, it really kind of like pushed women's longboarding forward in a lot of ways. And from that, like people like Kelia Moniz and Jen Smith and, and, you know, those kind of girls really had an opportunity to to step up their game and get some world recognition. Was that the biggest change that you think you saw in your time with Roxy? Was that the increased prize money and the increased money spend on the events which enabled the the level to step up because there was more incentive for the women? It was more incentive and it was also like a standalone event for the women within the longboard space that never existed before. So that was really huge not to be kind of like, because, you know, we always had our like longboard events, but it was always like guys and girls at this place or that place. Like, you know, and it was awesome, but there was no prize money. And women would always get more often than not like the bad conditions. And so that was really giving us an opportunity to get, like, good surfing conditions, like, kind of equal, you know, and then also have a standalone event on our on our own where women were celebrated entirely the whole time. Roxy, especially Roxy Europe, they had a woman, Marichu, Derigrand, and Marichu was the one who really started Roxy Europe. And she was also uh, France's first female um, champion and, and female, like, surfer, really. So she was probably in her 50s when I met her and into her, well into her probably like late 50s, early 60s when she was doing those events that said like, you know, it was really run by the women for the women. And um, and I think in some ways, you know, even sometimes better than some of, of the shortboard events, you know, because there was just so much care. You know, like I remember they had compost toilets and all this stuff. It was just so forward when it come when it came to the the eco factor of it. Really ahead of its time, I guess. It was really ahead of its time. It was really, really ahead of its time. I feel like the last year that they had it was maybe two thousand eight. I want to say maybe two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and it happened for five years before that. So like, really started in two thousand like three or four. So it was hugely ahead of its time. And also a long time company. Does it disappoint you that it's kind of taken a back step, I guess, as the industry and the GFC really affected the way that surf events were run worldwide? 
Absolutely. It's um, it's been a bummer to see that kind of taken a back seat because there was all this momentum for the girls. And now sometimes you paddle out and you see a lot more women on longboards than, than anything. But I think, uh, you know, what that was was really celebrating a time and an energy and a, a perfect balance between things. And, and, you know, the women really had an opportunity to show their stuff. And it seems like since that, you know what I mean, like now that it's gone to China and that there's just really not the same visibility or care and curation around it that, like, I don't think as many people are paying attention, maybe. Uh, what has been done in the past can be done again. I think it was a perfect blueprint, and it would be very easy for um, a brand. I also think the fact that Roxy was a real female brand that was really pushing um, female surfing across the board, them being part of that really was what allowed it to kind of have the care and attention given to it that um, made it what it was. That said, since Swatch took over, um, they have great ideas and they have a lot of, like, care and concern about things, but I don't think that, obviously, it's not part of their heritage, it's not part of the foundation of the brand, and the fact that they're not women-specific, it's just, it's coming from a little bit different place. And then since then, now that it's in China, it feels like something happens over there that nobody's even aware of. And then all of a sudden, there's a world champion, but you can't really make a world champ off one event, and then nobody really even knows who it is. It's a bummer for the girls that are winning now. And, and should be celebrated and, and can be celebrated. But it also is a test to what could be, and I hope it gets picked up back again soon. Well, everything is cyclical in sports, so I'm sure that it will have its day again, and, and I think it's more just about us pushing it. But you did spend 12 years at Roxy and then moved into your own brand. So tell me a little bit about how and what pushed that button of passion to become reality. As I started to grow up more and more and had an opportunity to travel the world since I was a young kid, it's one of those things where like, I, I really had a lot of opportunity to travel and move and, and see a lot of the world since a young age. And I was, I think just as like time is a luxury, so is choice. And then I think just seeing a lot of the developing nations where I spent a lot of time, seeing some of the state of the affairs that people live in, how getting access to clean water is an issue. Food is an issue. Um, having clean waterways is an issue. I've seen like the waterways of so many of my favorite places be overly polluted just in my short time traveling in 20 years. So I just wanted to do something that was a little different. And instead of contributing to the problem, I wanted to start focusing around a solution. And I think working with a big corporate company, actually, it was contributing to the problem. Fast fashion being the number two polluter in our world and having throwaway t-shirts and things that are made cheaply to be bought again cheaply um, over and over again. And it's weird because we're in the surf world and we spend so much time uh, in the ocean and in the waterways and, and we're the guinea pigs in a lot of way. And it's also the surf industry is one of the biggest polluting industries on the planet. For its side, if for its size, if you were to like reference with everything else, you know, there's so many toxic chemicals that go into surfboard making and manufacturing. So many toxic chemicals that go into the fast fashion world and everything being so cheap and throwaway. So what I wanted to do was start focusing on solutions and different ways that we could reimagine things. Making wetsuits at first that were made to last longer instead of fall apart in two months. With that comes a little bit higher price point, but if you're paying for something that's going to last maybe a year instead of two months, 
then that's a way that we could play it forward. We also started a wetsuit recycling program. We take a lot of our scraps and cuttings, uh, or all, you know, pretty much all of our scraps and cuttings, and and the bigger pieces we're able to turn into upcycled materials. And the smaller pieces that are too small to make a bathing suit or make a tote bag go and are recycled with old wetsuits to create yoga mats and changing mats. This year we were able to make work with a technology that Patagonia worked with, which is like a sustainably mined limestone-based neoprene, which is better than working with anything based in petroleum, as there's so many issues going on with, with oil right now. So I think like if you're in any industry, if you're creating anything new and not from 100% recycled materials, it's hard to say it's eco or it's hard to say it's sustainable, though we're doing things in the lowest impact way we possibly can. And that first low impact way was just making things last longer and making things of higher quality. And then trying to do our best to educate people on like, hey, you get what you pay for. Instead of things that are like a throwaway $5 t-shirt, I want a t-shirt that I'm going to keep for a while and I'd rather pay $60 for it. Obviously going down that path is such a big risk for a young person or a startup because the price of creating the product is so much and also the the price point for the consumer is so high as well so I think it's a really big risk how much did you put into that and how much confidence did you have behind yourself to know that it would work well I didn't know it would work and I'm still wondering if it's working that said I'm still trying every day and I, I put you know my whole life savings on it I don't have investors I just started it by myself so all the money I saved up my whole life as a surfer I put into my company and I believe that with education and having an opportunity to make something better and like really having people have their own opportunity to make their choice, we're not trying to preach to anybody. It's just about sharing information so people can make up their own decisions and their own choices. And so that's what it's about, you know, and, and, and really it cost me like my whole life savings. And it also cost me like the last like four years of my life. And I just really started trying to surf again and being out in the world again in different ways. That said, like, you know, I really believe in it and I really believe in giving uh, people an alternative solution. And not to say that my brand is the solution. We're just working towards more possible ways that we can live and, and, and create in a more harmonious way with our planet. So there is a future. I feel like there is a really quite significant shift in that movement of thought at the moment amongst the general population as well. Can you feel that uh, maybe with the pickup of how many people are purchasing your product or just the amount of people that you're talking to? Like a lot more people actually are willing to give up that little bit of extra money to support something that they know is going to be sustainable and good for the planet? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that in the first year that we were selling, people just liked our crazy prints, but we're like, well, why are your wetsuits that much more expensive? And we were just like, and at the time, they weren't made with, you know, the sustainable line pro, limestone neoprene. They were made with premium neoprene, and they cost a lot more to make because of the way that they were made. And it just took telling people, hey, feel the difference. Like, try one on. Take it surfing. Are you warmer? Does it last longer? All these boxes check. So then we had repeating customers. The first two years were really hard to get people to even buy into it. Um we had a lot of like wholesale orders and stuff like that, but th those aren't dedicated customers necessarily. That said, in the last year to 18 months, we've had a lot more dedicated people coming back, repurchasing our product, 
recycling their old wetsuits of whatever other brand that they have with us because we have partners these guys two good yoga mats that we recycle them with and just being like thank you for doing what you do or like your wetsuit is warmer and lasts longer than any other wetsuit now we're able to work with the premium neoprene um that's that's made out of sustainable limestone that patagonia first put a lot of their energy and time and research money into creating and now they're on to ulex but it opens up an opportunity for small brands like us to work with lower impact materials so it's cool it's like i really feel like in the last like year to 18 months like people started really caring and the first kind of two years we were in business it was really hard for me because i feel so passionately about our world and about creating things and and bringing awareness to stuff and and part of me is also like you know battling myself like why create anything at all if it's if it's harmful but it's like well we can create in more and more lower impact ways and we can also encourage the bigger brands to move this way and because we're a small brand we have a lot more mobility to move and and focus around that so it's been really awesome in the last year to 18 months to, to really feel the shift. And as we're feeling the shift, we're having a lot more dedicated customers coming back online and purchasing online, which allows us to stay in business because being self-funded and having no investment money, it's really hard to stay in, in battle. And, and when people are like, well, why is this company's wetsuits that much cheaper? Well, they're a giant global corporation. Like they have even the, the quantity to make things cheaper. They're also not using the, the best materials and it's hard for us. And, and I'm not going to like sob story everyone. I'm just like, you know, I don't really let a lot of people know that because it's like really nobody's business. It's just like, hey, we're making the best quality wetsuits we possibly can. And this is what they cost us. And for us to continue to stay in business and allow us to make more suits for you, like this is this is like the bottom line. You know, we do the suits as cheaply as possible. That said, it's it's really, it's not easy for the small people. That's, you know, small companies out there um, working with the corporate world. But then also you see the bigger corporate companies are, are struggling as well. And they're all having to merge together because there has been a larger shift, I feel like, in the world. Um both personally, like this conversation that we're having and in the world business. So it's getting easier and easier day by day for us smaller companies to make it. And it's because of, you know, the the consumer and the and and their power. It's like the consumers have all the power and as we should, because we can really have an opportunity to dictate the, you know, the environmental standards and the quality standards that we want to see and, and stop letting the corporations dictate to us what they're willing to give us. It's like, hey, no, we want to see we want to see things that are made in more mindful ways because technology is there, access to all that materials there. It's just a willingness to want to do something. I personally think that we're on a real cusp of quite dynamic change right now with with retail and everything that you were just talking through. And that is because the consumer is starting to take charge of their own rights and, and the change that is possible to make. Do you feel like that you're on a, that same cusp business-wise? Absolutely. I feel that things are really catching up. It's awesome. And I think like a lot of the times when you're an individual with with great ideas, you have these ideas and it's frustrating sometimes because the rest of the world is catching up. I mean, I can only imagine what like Yvonne Chouinard felt like starting Patagonia like over 20 years ago. You know, it's like, and so it's like, I think the rest of the world is catching up. It's also hard sometimes being like one of the 
kind of like first people and I think like within the surf world in a lot of ways I mean we're the first women's ever brand to be creating things in this way that's like by women for women and is also like a super privately owned company so it hasn't been easy but again like going back to like if it was easy would it be worth it like it's not it's not easy to make big change in the world or or to make big uh, big waves but it's really rewarding and if anything to help to do something to change the mindsets of the bigger companies is really what it's about at the end of the day yeah that's such an amazing i think for a lot of people when they see challenge they get a little bit scared but the fact that you put every single thing into this and and you're creating that first woman's brand specifically for women sustainably made and with you know the prospect of being a part of that change is pretty incredible where do you see the company going in the next 10 years well i hope we can continue to stick around for another 10 years i mean each day it's like each day is is a big deal that we're still in business and as i see those people coming to our website that's what allows us to stay in business and we just launched in australia for the first time actually having our suits in the country we had our wax over there before but now we actually have our wetsuits there for the first time ever so that's what another thing i was super stoked on and and we have them in my friend eden has a brand called dead kooks it's in his shop in byron and i think we're going to get in thomas bexton's shop so that's also what's really cool because it's also like people that i know who or in my community that have their own shops now and they're actually helping me by bringing my brand to Australia and then they're getting good sales and good feedback and it's helping their companies so I really think it's a super exciting time that you know all of us um, people that have big dreams are helping each other continue to stay in business and make more of a splash in the world especially in the surf world so I'm really hoping to continue to create I'm hoping to grow the business and actually hire a couple people because that would be nice because it would give me more freedom to uh surf <laughs> what we were talking about the time is the luxury and then it would also help us to be able to do more good in the world we're launching a wax subscription program right now we only have the ability to allow wax to be subscribed in the u.s and people um you know part of that subscription is donated to the surf rider foundation so that's really awesome so like everything we possibly can we give back in every way we can and even if it's like a hundred bucks here or there depending on the subscriptions we get at least we're like donating something and we're helping to raise awareness about some of the causes that we feel are super important to us yes such an amazing story of entrepreneurship and and inspiration and passion see i was so grateful to have you on the line today and hear about your projects and wish you all the best of luck for the future hopefully we can stay in touch and and keep track of your progress and your successes Thank you so much for having us and it was so nice having a chat and I hope to get back over to Australia soon and to go surfing with y'all. So thank you so much. That was our chat with Cassia Mador. You can jump online and check out her range and support the momentum she's creating at www.cassiasurf.com. Stay tuned to the mermaidsociety.com.au for more news, information and stories from the sea. I'm Sally Mack. See you next time.